Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels Horror Video Game Podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. I'm the other one, Neil Pope. And for today's episode, Neil and I are joined by game designer and BladeDisgusting.com contributor Aaron Bain to chat all things Bloodborne. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Excited to talk uh, Bloodborne with you, a game that I think has infuriated many, but for I'm speaking for myself at least, um, it's... <laughs> The one type of Souls game that I think has left the longest lasting impression on me. Um, so I'm curious, kind of what about that game really stands out to you amongst the uh, other Souls games that are out there? Yeah, um, I kind of have a similar, like, I have an opposite, actually, history. I don't have anything else with any of the other Souls games. Oh, really? Games. Like, this is the only one that ever resonated with me. Um, initially, I bought uh, Demon Souls when it came out on the PlayStation 3, and I bounced off of it pretty much immediately um, to the point where, like, I brought it back to GameStop, and I remember <laughs> kind of the clerk, uh, you know, chuckling at me as I was selling it back to him. Um, and then when Dark Souls came out, you know, and that kind of really broke big, I just remembered my experience with Demon Souls and didn't feel like it. I'm never I'm never a person who really gravitates towards fantasy mm. and particularly medieval fantasy kind of is a little less interesting to me. Um but but I do like that that Victorian gothic horror. Mm. And when I first got a PlayStation 4, um I was looking for something to grab and that was that was pretty much right around the time Bloodborne came out and despite the fact that I had had such a rough time with Demon Souls, I was really gravitate. I was really grabbed by the um, aesthetic and all the and everything around it, um, and I decided to give it a shot. Yeah, so I had practically the same exact experience as you did, uh, actually, with <laughs> it. Where um, I played Demon Souls in college because one of my roommates had it, and I think I played three or four different sessions, and I was pretty uh, pretty equivocal in saying like, "This is not for me." Right? I bounced off it pretty hard. I'm just like you in terms of. I bounce off of fantasy stuff. Even dark fantasy stuff is not really my usual uh, go-to. But as soon as one of my roommates got Bloodborne later on, like that was a game where just from the look of it, I was like, okay, this is a world I want to explore. And it was very much in line with what you had said in terms of like the gothic Victorian style, like we're all horror fans here. So that's an aesthetic that I immediately was like taken with and I wanted to explore more of. And even if uh, it would take me several months to uh, kind of tackle Bloodborne in the right ways uh, and actually trying to finish it. It was one that I kept coming back to despite a lot of the sort of frustration that I usually have with Souls-type games and sort of the extreme difficulty and mastery of them. Bloodborne is one that its world is so rewarding and just being in it and trying to explore it in all these different ways that it was one that I was surprised how often I came back to. How about you, Neil? How was uh, your go with Bloodborne? I, I'm the control patient here. Um, uh, yeah, I adore Demon Souls, uh, the original <laughs> version, uh, the remake less so. But that, that ties into uh, a general problem I have with Souls games beyond Demon Souls. Um, I didn't like Dark Souls as a result because it wasn't like Demon Souls. Uh, so I sort of cooled off on the series for a bit, and as a result, didn't play much. I played Demon, uh, Dark Souls two. I liked it for what it was, and you know I like it a lot better than probably the other games in that series. And I think the tipping point for me came was I had to review Dark Souls three, having not played Bloodborne at this point anyway, because I just ignored it as much as it, I liked the look of it and everything about it. Screamed, this is everything you like about Demon Souls, 
with all that Devil May Cry gothic architecture, and you have a gun and all this stuff, it'd be great. Like that, and I thought, nah, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little burnt out with that. Yeah, I, I ploughed through Dark Souls 3 in like six days before anyone was on it, so we didn't have the online connection stuff, and obviously that's fucking hell um, with, a, with a Souls game, because there's no hints, nothing. Uh, you know, subsequently no invasion stuff, but yeah, all the same. It was a slog, and it came around the time of a couple of other games that were really big slogs. And so, I, at the same time, I enjoyed it. Came to Bloodborne after that, thinking, "Well, I'll give it a go because if it's different, it'll be refreshing," you know, and like that. And yeah, I think it, it was it was enough the same that I just didn't want to know. And, and as a result, I sort of had a hard time with it many times since, but persevered because while that side of it didn't interest me as much as it should have the overall lore the visual style the architecture all that was so fascinating to me you know that i was looking into all of that well beyond finishing the game you know i was uh, there were like great there's a great series of bloodborne diaries on youtube that sort of documented like each area and like that and it just I appreciated the game that way and then sort of went back to it and and felt a connection with it on that side of it. I still, to this day, don't like it as much as the game, yeah, but for all it does beyond that and some of the boss fights in that, uh, it just, yeah, it, it's from how this knack with their games that even if you don't get on with it, there's always something. There's always something in it that really sort of hits. That was definitely sort of my experience too with it in that I took forever to get through Bloodborne. I probably, it probably almost took me a year to get through it because it was this game that I would come to periodically in between when I was playing other things just because I'm not necessarily somebody that comes to really challenging games when I kind of have this finite amount of time to sure. play games, right, in terms of the rest of uh, my life, which I'm sure we can all relate to on some level. But it's this idea that the world itself is so rewarding in a way that, again, I haven't experienced all that all these soul games uh, offer, but it was so rewarding so quickly for a variety of reasons in such a small amount of time that it's one that even if I had to play through like old Yarm multiple times, more so than probably anybody should ever play through it, I was always finding something new, whether that be a new type of creature or maybe it was just like me exploring more. And I always found through that exploration, I was getting something that I did not previously experience um, yeah. in a way that I don't really, th again, from my limited experience with the other Souls games, I don't want to damn them too much because I haven't played many of them, but it's this idea that in such a short period of time, that first hour, I think, I had such a rewarding experience, even if it was only for these 30 or 40 minute stints at a time where I was just like, yeah, this is a world I want to come back to even if uh, even if my controller's worse off for it because that might go flying once in a while. <laughs> but um, in terms of kind of like the gameplay and challenge. Aaron, for you, what about this sort of stood out to you initially from a gameplay perspective that made it a standout? Like we'll probably get into the world and things like that and the aesthetic of it and why that resonates with us all so much in a little bit. But in terms of just gameplay, because there's a reason that people bounce off of these games pretty hard, right? And I think that already we've the three of us have uh, been able to share that we've bounced off of various entries and whatnot. But what about Bloodborne from a gameplay perspective? made you keep coming back to it to me i always i always used the analog that it was almost like learning a new language 
because it was it was so much different than anything I had played before. I mean, I had played things like Devil May Cry that did require more precision action or more, you know, yeah. good reflexes to dodge stuff. But this felt so much more specific um, and like more intentional gameplay wise. And that really that really resonated with me and i almost there was a part where i almost quit bloodborne but like since it was something <laughs> um you know it might have been one of those things where you know it was part that i really loved the world it was part that that was the game i had to play on playstation 4 at that time <laughs> um that i just pushed through it i'm sure the the first wall i really got was that um mob in the beginning of central yarnum the one that's around the um around the burning werewolf in the middle of the town square oh, yeah. i remember i probably spent like two weeks on that um just bashing my head trying to figure it out but when i did it was so rewarding and i'm not usually a person who plays games for challenge that much but for whatever reason everything clicked into place with this and when i would when i would get through a challenging area or you know explore and have two blood vials left and finally find the next you know the next lantern so i could rest um those types of moments were just some of the most exhilarating I could find in video games. Absolutely. I find that Bloodborne has almost a roguelite type quality to it, right? Where these mm-hmm. specific runs that you have through similar environments or the same areas over and over, each of those runs can take a life of its own in terms of just like, oh, like you said, oh, I only have two blood vials left. How am I going to get through this section? And then by the skin of your teeth, you manage to pull it off. And all of a sudden you might die 30 seconds after you clear a certain area and yet something memorable probably happened because of the sort of risk reward nature of Bloodborne and that's not to say again all the other Souls games don't have a risk reward to them but Bloodborne from my experience I found really has it doesn't play like other games it you almost have to relearn how to play games in a certain way which is not something that I think we can say of many games I think we go into a lot of games and the variables are different based on varying genres and things, and yet Bloodborne, it seems, it challenges the player to think outside the box, or to not even think outside the box, but to relearn how to play a game. And it's it's a, it's a gamble, because it's this idea that it's like, well, sure, you can ask them to play a game in a way they might not, or introduce mechanics that sort of fundamentally change the way that they approach games like this, and yet if it doesn't have the depth that Bloodborne has, then you've got an experience that can go on for, I don't know, 30 hours or something that it's like, well, I think I'm good after like five hours. It's a big risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it tends to be a key thing of any Souls game or Souls Warm game you connect with is how your runs go. You know, you there's usually a lot of peaks and troughs where you will have something that in the long run seems like really stupid that you ended up stuck on you know, I, I think of Sekiro and that first ogre fight that lasted me longer than some of the hardest bastards in that game because it was learning how the game works and how it's teaching you all these different things that are, and I think that's also where Bloodborne has a similar thing because it's so detached from the normal souls style of uh, fighting in terms of, you know, you have to be more aggressive, but, you know, there is a still that defensive level to it. Um, you're always trying to keep on the front foot as much as possible, keep going in, keep having a go, whilst understanding that you need to protect yourself at a moment's notice. Whereas, you know, when you go to the Dark Souls, Demon Souls games, you can literally just sort of 
chip away, play safe, sit back. Both these games, you know, are evolutions of that in that you do you are taking the fight to the enemy rather than sort of persevering through it. And you know, it, it's a really interesting dynamic. And you know, if I could credit Bloodborne's combat with anything, it, it is that that you can just really um, play it and almost Devil May Cry-esque in some ways because you're fighting through everything, you know, rather than just, you know, picking up a shield. You know, shields aren't really a thing here that with Bloodborne. You know, the gun takes the uh, place of that. And, that you know, that's the clearest indicator in that game and Sekiro that you are having a very different experience in terms of... Uh, it's weird how something so small makes such a big difference to how you go into the world and thematically with how Bloodborne goes anyway I think it, it's a good fit because you know you are the hunter you are you know the, it, in a very hostile world you are supposed to be used to this and this sort of endless night of death where every time you die everything comes back again just like it does in any Souls game but here it feels more thematically secure you know it feels like it connects better with all that I think one of the most um, important combat mechanics that Bloodborne has is that regen mechanic. Yeah, that where you have that regen window, and it's it's such a small thing, but it's so smart in really informing the way that you play and really forcing you to um, be more aggressive and have to have to think it in that in that way rather than what was traditionally with the Souls games. And it's so interesting to see how that influences other games like Doom. Because Doom, uh, the Doom 2016 reboot had had that very aggressive combat, yeah. and it had mechanics that were similar that forced you into, you know, into the fray rather than out of the fray to be able to regenerate health and stuff like that. And I think that's really, really key in capturing the tone of that game. Yeah, I think the rally system, yeah, it ties right into that risk reward system, which is so important in kind of allowing Bloodborne to craft its own identity, right? I mean, how easy would it be for them to kind of just make well? This is a more agile, aggressive version of a Souls game. And yet having this idea that you get a benefit from that other than just having a very defining uh, maybe tone or pacing shift to combat, you get rewarded in that. And it seems like you had said it's such a small thing and yet it has such a fundamental grasp on the entire game and the strategy behind that in a way that feels revolutionary. Even to somebody like me that played a little bit of Demon Souls, they barely played any of Dark Souls 1 and 2, and yet it's such a it's such a fundamental mechanic that this feels like an experience that they are building from game to game, rather than just like, well, this is, it's been a couple of years, we're going to do a new coat of paint on this, and we're going to give it a different aesthetic, and that's the end of it. And something that I want to bring up that you had mentioned, Aaron, was a sense of reward. And I find that this game is so heavily layered in that, that it allows people like me that bounce off of Souls games often to really come back to it because you get these milestones of rewards in terms of not only just a boss battle, right? Because by the time you get to your first boss that you defeat, that's like a holy shit monumental moment. You stand up and you're just like, I can't believe I finally did that. I've tried for the last two hours, and at least in my case, with uh, like the cleric beast or something. And then I defeated it, and then it's like, okay, on to the next one. But leading up to that, I had so many uh, small milestones, whether it be kind of like clearing that fire pit that you mentioned with the werewolf uh, the first time, like learning and memorizing 
and I'm not somebody that usually is one of those people that's like, I have to master this game or whatever. But when the game is so many little sections that you have to master essentially, and the uh, scale of those engagements is small, but very complex, that's a different type of rewarding experience where it's like, okay, I'm going to conquer this area. And then you have to do that maybe 30 times before you get it. And then you find a, a lamppost that allows you as like the checkpoint or kind of like the teleportation point. And you're like, holy shit, I, now I don't have to worry about that section I just mastered unless I really want to, unless I need to go farm for a short period of time for uh, silver bullets or blood vials and whatnot. But the game is so perfectly layering the environments that the player has to play through and experience that there's so many milestones through that that I don't necessarily worry about like the next boss because I'm like, well, I just champion this part. And so moving on to the boss at the end of that, it's this thing where it's just like, okay, I don't have to worry about the next boss for a while because there are these smaller engagements I have to worry about first. That's pretty much why I bounced off of Demon Souls was that from my memory, at least like a lot of the milestones were just like defeating a boss and thinking about failing at a boss and then having to redo so many different little milestones and not having milestones in terms of like a lamppost or something in between that. From what I remember, that was like very disheartening and it made me bounce off of it because I was like, well, am I going to sacrifice another 30 minutes or something or 40 minutes to get to that one section and everything has to go right. Whereas with Bloodborne, I don't want to say it's obviously easier. That would be uh, a, the worst way imaginable to describe Bloodborne. But it felt like I was given more to work with in getting to an end goal of a boss for a section. And I also think that there's an interesting layer of reward in the way that the game tells its story. Because um, I distinctly remember letting a, a coworker borrow this game. And he returned it to me pretty quickly because he was like, oh, I didn't really like it because there wasn't really a story in it. Hmm. And I think that that is, um, you know, it's something where the game doesn't tell a story in the same traditional way that you'd expect with cutscenes and, you know, linear progression and stuff like that. And so much of the story is told through item descriptions or just the environment around you that the reward of finding a new sword isn't necessarily just having a new tool in your arsenal. It's also this piece of lore and a piece of the puzzle that you're fitting together this larger tapestry of the world and what's going on, um, which is, you know, just another layer of reward right on top of the actual mechanical layers. A fascinating thing about the game, as I said, it, that really sort of connects with me more than anything else, is that, like you know, as Miyazaki himself has said, it, it goes back to you know, the cosmic horror of Lovecraft, but also has that uh, Bram Stoker feel. You know, I'm mm. an absolute dead-on sucker for Bram Stoker era sort of gothic horror, brilliant, and it really does get that just right. But tells this sort of mixture of the two um, that I think we've been discussing this on several games in the past on the podcast games that have these little tidbits in their story that sort of you know enrich it if you really go looking for it um, you know as you said Aaron you know someone could go into it and not see any of that and think that it doesn't have a story and you know th there are obviously some people do go all the way the other way with this and and read far too much into stuff when it comes to bubble because it's so you know despite what you can learn there is this ambiguity to it that 
you know allows for debate and discussion and you know that i think works in its favor really in a really good way because it, it just ends up being this great mystery as it should be like any good cosmic horror any gothic horror should be there should be this element and air of mystery in a, in the long run and you know, even if you have a whole bunch of details that sort of give you an idea you're basically a conspiracy theorist in the game you are you're piecing together bits and bobs and going i understand this part this part this part but what if this is also something about it you know and like the, there are little themes in the you know about it that make you think wow yeah this could actually be all about this and i love that that's brilliant because on the surface if you look at bloodborne and it is this like gothic horror game you know like dark souls water, water, water. but yeah you look into it deeper and deeper it's definitely more cosmic horror it's definitely you know it has a science fiction vibe to it in that in that sense because you know it is talking essentially about aliens and ancient beings and it's like you wouldn't get that without sort of really delving into it and I, that's what i like about any of these games and there's in from software's catalog where they just sort of have this things that you can unearth at your own pace if you are really into it the player is going to be rewarded and keep talking about that whether it be gameplay or the world but it's also about how much the player explores and mm. exploring ad nauseum almost which somebody like me ends up doing because they're awful at the game so they're like well i'm going to keep farming certain areas for resources or for um, xp essentially in that exploration i'm going to learn inevitably more about it i'm going to read certain uh, whether it be item descriptions or just the types of dialogue that I encounter from like knocking on a door and somebody telling me to fuck off basically periodically and whatnot. But there's something to that. Again, talking about each run or each life being memorable. It's like, well, if I take risks here, sure, I might die, but I might unearth a piece of lore or something like that. And it, in the long run, it might seem inconsequential, but when you stack all of these experiences, it becomes fleshing out the overall experience in a way that is far more rewarding than whatever kind of afterthought dialogue could come across in a cutscene in some generic fantasy or dark fantasy type game. Yeah, I think that that kind of bait and switch that they do in revealing that it's a Lovecraftian types cosmic horror story later is is so brilliant because that was none of that was in the marketing no. very much. It was all very go through the streets of, you know, uh, Victorian London-esque town and fight werewolves and beasts. And having that twist come in later almost um, almost simulates the I, the experience of being like a Lovecraft protagonist as they like, you know, they initially in Lovecraft stories don't know exactly the magnitude of what they're of what they're getting into and then they slowly uncover bit and bit of information until they finally you know, uncover the whole picture and, you know, go mad in doing so yeah. and that that's kind of simulated in the way you experience the world and experience the story of this game and I think that's a really smart and unique way to play with the ideas that Lovecraft did without actually directly using Cthulhu and his mythos and that sort of stuff Absolutely. It does such a great job of not resemble of having semblances of a resemblance to things that you are familiar with. And yet it's completely unlike anything you've ever played up until that point. I think even if you have experience with the Souls games, I think that is for me what separates Bloodborne so much is this sort of unabashed, brazen weirdness in terms of combining all these elements that we've been talking about that we're all fans of previously. But I mean, I get so much personality, not only through items that you find, but 
like the weapons, right? And the whole identity behind those. And Aaron, like you had said, I bounce off of fantasy stuff pretty hard uh, often uh, just because it's like, it to me at least, it feels like what I've experienced, it's a majority of the same variables being recycled and whatnot. And coming through to Bloodborne, I was like, well, okay, I'll pick this staff or whatever. We'll see what this is like, this cane. And then I found out, okay, the cane has an alternate mode that turns it into this fl- uh, whip with knives on it, essentially. And I was just like, holy shit, this is so cool. And it's unlike anything I've had in a game before. And on the surface, you're like, okay, this is kind of cool. It's basically a melee weapon with an, an alt fire, if you will. And then you find out that it completely fundamentally changes the way that you're playing the game based on which mode of one weapon you're using. And not only do you sense the personality from just the way the weapon looks and kind of the brief history that you learn about it or the utilizations of it, but it fundamentally rewrites how you've been playing the game up until a certain point. And the fact that you can get new weapons that have that same level of depth, for me, again, somebody that took forever to get through Bloodborne and essentially was replaying the same sections over and over and over, jumping between different weapons and and basically developing new tactics with each playthrough and learning how each of the weapons works, that's a metagame in and of itself. And it gives this longevity to a game that otherwise would be maybe kind of straightforward for people that are probably more talented at it than I am. But also, it just it gives me such a variety of experiences that I find, again, a lot of fantasy or dark fantasy games, I find that they're kind of like very straightforward. You develop a pattern of attacks and then you're going to upgrade that over the course of 20 or 30 hours but with Bloodborne there's so many variables to each of the weapons and each of the combat patterns that you can get from those that it gives this game a variety of experiences that I had not experienced in something that was similar to this in terms of being this dark fantasy horror game yeah the and the variety of weapons are also is also like much more visually diverse too yes. like you have you have these weapons that almost like the saw like the sort of signature saw cleaver almost looks like a, a, a horrific medical tool or something like <laughs> yeah. that you know it's just so it's just so evocative seeing things like that and then even um one of the other ones i loved was from the dlc the whirligig saw which is basically just like a big like pizza cutter buzz saw type <laughs> yeah. thing it's it's they're just such interesting looking weapons that i hadn't seen anything like that in you know this type of game before and that really drew me to it yeah it definitely has the most unique set of weaponry uh, i think in um any of their games um it's i i think you know it's ironic because you know they went from that back to the usual set of dark souls 3 and then went to sekiro which was pretty much like simple you know they, they streamlined it all the way back and made it more about how you use that the weapon this very singular weaponry and uh, made your arm the tool but it, it, it's um the other interesting part of that is it really makes it part of the world you know as you said there's that one weapon being very much like medical equipment in its way feel you know with this whole blood thing, you know blood medicine theme going on throughout the whole game yeah, there is this sort of um, brutal weaponry turned medical equipment sort of feel to a lot of the, what is in there, and, and it it's smart, smartly designed. And you know that that, that is the case with Miyazaki's stuff. That he he said himself, you know, he he tries to think of everything as being part of the same world. There's nothing is just designed because it looks cool. You know, it, he's doing it because he believes that it should be. Uh, you know consistent with that world 
and hence why when you know you don't just see approximations of those weapons then appear in another game you know it's fair enough in the souls games where they all sort of roll over a bit because they are all sort of set in the same kind of area tone sort of thing but it's very different when you go to jump to bloodborne or a secular there's like a lunacy and sort of this almost apocalyptic feel to Bloodborne that I don't necessarily mm. attribute to the Souls games. And again, to to come back to what Aaron was saying about like that uh, saw blade looking like it's a piece of medical equipment. I mean, it feels like a world that is hanging on by a thread. Like the reality yeah. that this world still exists, it feels ridiculous because of how hellish it is in a lot of ways. And it does capture, we talked about, the more you explore, the richer the lore is and more you can uncover. I mean, it has the quality of games that I love so much and specifically like the worlds that you get to explore in some games that are more dark horror focused where you're coming to an environment after this cataclysmic event and somehow the world is still surviving and it's gone on. And yeah. you're kind of seeing the last semblances of a society that should have died and fallen off a long time ago. And it's the type of thing where it's like that in and of itself has to be reflective in not only the history of the world and the lore that you're going to uncover, but also every single piece of the world, whether it be characters, whether it be a specific chunk of an environment or weapons and items in these things. Like if any of those things, like if you did not have these crazy weapons and you just kind of had the usual, this is a broadsword, this is a longbow, like those would feel so out of place in Bloodborne mm-hmm. because the world itself mm-hmm is so hellish in a way that I think defies a lot of dark fantasy. And that's why we've kind of mentioned the, whether it be uh, Bram Stoker, the HP Lovecraft influence without having us beaten over the head with those influences, right? You don't have the tentacle monsters and you don't have the very overt vampire guy in the, in the shroud and whatnot. You have all of these things and creatures that are in influence of those and yet feel wholly original to this world in a way that you haven't seen previously. And that just, I mean, again, not to beat it to death, but like this game has a replayability within a first playthrough for me that I did not find any of the other Souls uh, ventures that I tried uh, had, which again, it's a game that I still like, I think about returning to just to kind of re-experience certain chunks of that. And I guess in talking about the sections of the game that stand out to us the most for you, Aaron, what are some of the, what is a section of this game that really stands out to you as much as i love like maybe from like a gray box perspective of just like you know stripping out all the all the theming and everything i think central yarnum is one of the most well-designed parts like i think mm-hmm. that it's so interesting and interlocking in the ways you can find a uh, little area you know little shortcuts and figure out how areas connect i think it's so incredibly rewarding um it's actually funny one time uh, my friend was going through the game much later than I was and he was getting getting lost in Spentral Yarnum and he was trying to figure out how to make his way back to something and he sent me a sent me a text message and I literally sat down drew a quick map <laughs> took a picture and sent it to him and then five minutes later he's like found it so um it has it has that level design that you can really that like you go through it enough and you can just it just becomes like the back of your hand because because a it's so well designed and b you're you're meant to to repeat it so many times yeah um but but as far as like like atmosphere and story stuff i like a lot of the places that feel like 
little short stories. Like I think Castle uh, Kanehurst is really is really great, um, as well as um, the Hemwick Charnel Lane. Um, both of those places feel like um, just like little variants on the themes that are in within the game of either um, trying to ascend through the blood or try in in uh, Kanehurst or trying to ascend through um, knowledge and like the acquisition of eyes in Hemwick Charnel Lane. I think that the um, that one's so interesting with Hemwick because you get the whole idea of um, ascending through knowledge and then getting being granted the eyes on the inside. And then you have the boss of that area, the witch of Hemwick, is somebody who's literally like covered in eyes, who has a hook to wrench your eye out. And it's just so obvious that it's like a misunderstanding of the idea of eyes granting you insight to the world and it's such a it's such a interesting way to fill out the lore and make the world feel so much more complete than just so showing the the main two sides that are in the game absolutely and i think that you mentioning like you basically have to learn the environments like they're the back of your hand and yet that never becomes tiresome i feel with these types of with this game in particular right this idea that yeah if you can't get behind the fact that you're going to be experiencing the same environments over and over and over, you're not going to play this game for very long. And yet that has never been an issue in the amount of time I've spent with this game that I've been playing it in that you're revisiting the same environments. And yet it, there's either, they're either made interesting by their architecture, by the uh, intricacy of their design, whether it's the creatures you're encountering or because it's tied into some type of lore later in the game. Um, that's an, example of them just really being able to use the most out of very little right this idea it's the same sort of environment that you're exploring and yet for me every time i run through it i'm noticing something different which kind of again speaks to the uh the depth of the victorian architecture that they're using but also like little story beats right you're kind of you're deriving new meaning and new lore from your interactions with certain creatures um and i think like you're mentioning the witches of hemwick uh, that's an example of a boss that is not very difficult in terms of the grand scale of Bloodborne, and yet it's made so memorable by the lore and by just the creature design in general. I mean, you, yeah. you want to talk about horror influence, like that's one of the most terrifying creatures in the game for me, and that's saying something considering all of the vast uh, hellish amalgamations of different creatures and man and beasts and whatnot that you encounter. And I think, again, it's a testament to the developer's ability to make everything memorable in a way that I don't necessarily think a lot of this game kind of bleeds together in the way that I found something like Demon Souls maybe um, bled together a little bit more for me where I was like, well, I'm not really looking forward to revisiting this environment or, okay, I get it, that boss is a dragon, the last one was an ogre or whatever type things. They, it feels very much like you can place elements from some of those past Souls games from other things that you've experienced. Whereas with Bloodborne, it's like, yeah, it's the, it's a group of witches, but I've never seen witches that look like this or have that same detail that you mentioned. And again, it's just a, uh, a testament to the sort of hellish creativity of Bloodborne that no matter how far away we are removed from that game's release, it still impresses with the uh, just the variety of creativity that's found within it. Yeah, it's very true. And um, I would say quite early on, there's a moment when you have played the game through and you understand more about how it is that really resonates for me it's which is the fight against father gascoin 
which you know for many players is you know synonymous with like this early ridiculously tough fight uh, I, I've seen many people bounce off that and be like fucking hell that was hard for something so early in the game but it makes sense in terms of story because he's there to stop you from going through this whole ritual of, uh, of, and, and becoming something you, you don't want to be uh, you know which you know, ultimately turns to hit his own tragedy um but yeah i think as a sort of checkpoint to say to the player almost like say this is the point of no return if you can get past this guy you know you're doomed you, you are submitting to fate you know and everything in it but we're going to make sure that this is a tough challenge for you and like I said, it is unreasonably tough when you go from that to, say, Vicar Amelia later, or even Dark Beast Pawns, things like that. It, it's such a tough fight early on. And like I said, I believe it is very much intentionally done to sort of portray that part of the story. That is someone who is very much the same kind of person as you, a fellow hunter, trying to prevent the cycle from continuing, if, if you will. And I, and I love that. You know, it's so subtle and you don't realise it at the time quite what's going on. But with that context later, it's become this great moment where you're like, wow. And I love that that beyond the fight itself, you know, know, from software boss fights are a special thing in themselves. There, There are so many amongst many games that I can go, wow, I love that. No matter what I thought the game in general, there's always that. And this is why, because often there is some sort of underlying thing to it that ties into the story you're being told, and it really kicks in. And I think Father Gascoigne is the perfect example of that here. He is emblematic of everything that you're going to experience, and in a very meta way, is the last post before you sort of really either jump away you know kick away and go nope no more of this or carry on and, and I think you know, I think when I first played it and didn't really get on with it ironically that was the point where I was like nah fuck this I, I'm, I'm not going to leave it and, and it wasn't until I came back to it that I got past it and maybe that's why it connects more for me as that sort of thing yeah and I guess Aaron for you in terms of just like the way the bosses are designed in Bloodborne, right? It's very much this kind of like classical thing where it's like, okay, you get them about halfway down their health bar and then becomes an entirely new beast in and of itself. How do you find that the design of the bosses sort of differs or do you find that they differ? Games in general, how do you find that they stand out? I think the level of of like challenge is is very unique. Like 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 Neil was saying, like there's nothing like a, a, a from boss fight. They're just so exil like there's just something about them that's so exhilarating of like, you know, being able to have very, you know, well animated tells that you can see what's happening. And it always it always feels like it's your fault when you're when you when you die. It's not the yeah. game being yes. cheap or something like that. It's like I just was a little late on that that dodge roll or I missed my parry window and stuff like that. Uh, so it's it's just so well designed that it it always feels intentional like everything you do is everything the game does is to 
allow you to figure it out and but not be too easy on you. Mm. So um, I think I think they're incredibly satisfying boss fights. Um, Father Gascoigne is one of my favorites. Um, again, both thematically and just from like a gameplay standpoint, I think that's a really interesting arena to fight in. Yeah, um, kind of giving, kind of giving like you know the graveyard of having all these like little things you can kind of put between you and him, mm. um, but never, never too much that you're out of danger completely. Um, and then I also really loved the um, the Lady Maria boss fight from the DLC. I don't know if anybody played the DLC. No, I haven't um, played that one. I, I've seen it because, yeah, like I said, I, I viewed a lot of it outside the context of playing. And yeah, it's, it is a, a, a very good fight. By the way. Yeah, that one's really exceptional. It's probably my... I, I tend to gravitate more towards the like hunter fights where you're fighting human-sized enemies. Because yeah. I think those are a little... Um, more readable sometimes sometimes the big you know sweeping yeah. monsters can feel a little harder to dodge yeah, um sure. whereas it's a lot more of a of a game of chess when you're playing directly with you know a human-sized enemy whether it be uh, lady maria father gascoigne or some of those um optional hunter fights mm-hmm. like um uh the crow of canehurst uh was a really good one and uh Eileen the crow and stuff like that those are those are some really really solid fights in there Absolutely. I think what you mentioned about character design tells like when a certain attack is coming, I find that those stand out to me the most, which helps to further differentiate uh, from software boss fights from other types of games. Right. I think a lot of times when I think of kind of just generic boss fights, it's always a tell is like a character bellows something. It's like, oh, he's going to use this heavy attack or something to that extent, which is so overt. You can't not miss it, and you know that it's coming and whatnot. But I think about something like the Blood Starved Beast, where when you get it to about halfway through its health bar and it has this attack where it I think it's it opens up like its jaws and it lunges at you and the only way that you know that's coming is is if you look and you see it kind of like shudder in place and it's not like this big audio cue or this big like oh the the tail is gonna like rise up above you it's very subtle and yet if you don't look for it you're gonna miss it and then you get uh, basically one one off killed with it and that always stands out to me again, like you had said, kind of this idea that I never died in this game and felt like, oh, that was cheap or that was bullshit. It's always my fault, which is very rare, I find, in boss fights in most games, right? Sometimes you, or majority of the time I find I encounter, it's like, well, that was kind of cheap or whatever. But with FromSoft games, I find that it's always my fault. And yet the mechanics are so pristine that yeah, it's my fault because these mechanics are so refined that how could I mess that up? I, it, it, your character's reactions are always on cue and whatnot in these things. And it's just, yeah, it further facilitates not only the difficulty of them, but at the same time, you're given all the tools you need. Even if maybe you don't have a surplus of Molotovs or a surplus of silver bullets, what you have at your core should be enough. All these other things and items and whatnot are, of course, going to make it less of a headache. But at the same time, you should be able to beat everything with just the sort of base vanilla gear that you have up until a certain point. In terms of um, Bloodborne being released in this specific aesthetic, one of the things that you kind of wanted to discuss was its comparison to another game that is very different in terms of its gameplay style, and yet it shares somewhat of a similar aesthetic, and that being order 1866 which was uh published by sony uh but within the same month of bloodborne which again has a similar tone and a look and yet it's a completely different game and i'm just curious to kind of pick your brain on that yeah i i 
when again, you know, this is one of the first games I got when I got a PS4. So I was looking at what was out and and the Order 1866 had also come out like a month before Bloodborne or so. And I thought it was so bizarre that they that Sony published these two games that were so similar to each other um because you know, obviously they are completely different types of games, but from the marketing standpoint, you know, you have like a Victorian era type London, you have werewolves, you have um, some sort of mystery going on. Uh, so as somebody who didn't really know anything about the Souls games, you know, I was I was looking at these as, as very similar things. And it's so funny that um, like, you know, the one that seemed more poised for success, which was The Order, because it was very much that Sony house style game of like, you know, uncharted shooting, yeah. you know, heavy cutscenes, that sort of stuff. I mean, I think at the time it was um, a lot of the talk on it when people saw it was like oh it's gears of war but victorian <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and it, it it that one is the one that kind of faded into obscurity while the one that succeeded was the one that is really kind of like actively aggressive to players <laughs> you know and pushing away and and so much less traditionally a type of game that would resonate with more people and in now history has you know really shown that Bloodborne is the one that people remember. Um, and I always found that fascinating. Uh, and I'm not, it, it, it kind of seems like the order was like, well, it had to come out a month before Bloodborne because if it would come out after Bloodborne, it would have just been nothing at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was going to say, it was uh, definitely a fascinating experiment. And during that generation uh, with Sony, it felt like they knew when a game wouldn't hit, you know? And that seemed to be the sort of example where they would just put very little into advertising and promotion of games that they didn't feel like they were going to do their job. That was definitely one of them. They put a bit more in than, say, they did with uh, something like the Ratchet and Clank reboot. But it still felt a bit off compared to what they did for Bloodborne. And as a result, it's the same kind of trust they put in Days Gone. Another, which was again by a studio that had previously done very small games, now from doing their first big game, and that, and that was the case with the order. And yeah, it, it felt very much like they were putting up a smokescreen to say, you know, hide the fact that you know when you think of these two experiences, as you said, Aaron, it the, the order is very much. Um, a different experience uh, from what Bloodborne is. You know, Bloodborne is very punishing. It is very much into making you step away from it and not carry on. Whereas the order is like several hours long. You almost can't fail. You know, in, in that game, it is very simplistic and very ordinary, and it's frustrating now because there are glimmers of hope for what they were doing. And you feel like with the way Sony went beyond that game, it, it was very, very important to them in terms of uh, how games that they made in-house turned out. But will we ever see a sequel now? It, we probably won't. But it's, it was very bad timing, it has to say. <laughs> but it came out against a game that was very much a game in terms of how it played out and its rule set and as we said, the boss fights and the things you could do in it, all very much play to the existence of being a game first and then story second. 
and which it does feel very funny when you think of Sony's uh, output during that generation. But they ended up being known for the opposite. You know, that that story was number one. Gameplay, as long as it's okay, we're fine. And that sold like hot rocks, you know, the, the, after that. But the order ended up being very much the opposite. And it was usurped by this game that was very much the traditional sense, you know. And I suppose in that sense, it's no wonder that Sony were like, hell yes, we should have a Souls-born game launching with our next console uh, and having Demon Souls be there uh, again, you know. It, the, they, they see the benefit of that kind of title, at least, which is comforting. But um, yeah, it is good in a way that Bloodborne managed to sink itself out, you know, during a time where games were sort of trying to find their identity again on the uh, in terms of big developers you know and publishers uh, it, it, things have been a bit up and down during the previous generation where you know people are trying to figure out how to utilize the internet and how to make money off secondhand copies and stuff and rather than trying to think of ways to make compelling games that people might want to play and yeah it, it's the kind of game that sort of is synonymous with that it, and it carried that legacy on nicely and I, I think ultimately as much as it was different from the order it played just as big a part in Sony's direction that generation going forward it's also such a funny coincidence to me that um, when Bloodborne it's outside the Soul series mm. um, Bloodborne gets released and has a similar looking game with the order and then the next time they make a game outside the souls which is Sekiro um Ghost of Tsushima was released a couple months <laughs> later and they both they both you know you have the similar settings and once again you know very similar from the trailer from you yeah. know the casual observer but night and day different I, I mean Ghost of Tsushima is definitely better than The Order but <laughs> um Sekiro is you know, in my personal opinion better than Bloodborne so it's like you know, that for me was like the refreshing game in that series that I really wanted mm-hmm. and yeah, as we said everyone has that game and again I think as you could point out that's a very good correlation between the two is because just as this big game comes out and is in this case at least more popular in Ghost of Tsushima because mm-hmm. the mindset's changed because of what Sony did in the last generation Ironically, Sekiro is a game that gets a lot more shit than Bloodborne did, um, despite basically doing the same thing, taking the Souls formula and reinventing it in a new new and brilliant way, I feel. And it's weird that it switched around, you know, like that. Probably because the publisher was Activision this time. And <laughs> if Sony had been the publisher, I, I guarantee that Sekiro would have been better received but yeah you know, it, in the end it turned out to be it was the best thing Activision had published in a long time and it kind of got shit because weirdly people that like Souls games thought it was too hard which just, just <laughs> felt odd because I enjoyed it more and I don't again as we've said multiple times throughout this podcast games being hard isn't necessarily the point or, or the reason why we like these games it is because they, they do something in particular that really connects. 
Yeah, and as somebody that hasn't played uh, Order 1866, at the same time, though, from afar, what it seems is, is that this comparison is apt because it further proves that just because you have a compelling and engaging-looking aesthetic, you have to have the gameplay to back it up. And it's so simplistic <laughs> to say, but it seems like a mistake that so many developers and publishers still make, and especially at the beginning of most console cycles, right? This idea that it's like, well, if this looks like something that people haven't played before, and of course it's utilizing the best of console technology at the time when it's released, eh, maybe you can skate with it being basically a lesser or a dumbed-down version of something that was successful in the past, i.e. your Gears of War comparison, which when you compare Order 1866 and uh, Bloodborne, Sure, they share some similarities in terms of their aesthetic, but we know for damn sure which one is going to withstand the test of time in terms of the gameplay and having something that has more layers to it than just being a continuation of something that came before it. And I think that that is what, in the long run, makes Bloodborne so impressive to me is that from software basically was saying, listen, we're not, we can't just do Souls with a new aesthetic on it because... Yeah. Granted, people like me that didn't necessarily enjoy Souls that much would have bounced off of Bloodborne just as hard as they did the previous uh, three games that came before it and whatnot. And so that is what makes Bloodborne still to this day the standout Souls-esque experience for me. And it makes me interested to see like how Elden Ring turns out because I'm interested to see if they're able to continue this sort of evolving on gameplay that they have already for a lot in a lot of ways like perfected within this specific uh, niche sort of genre that they have created themselves and based off of the sort of trailer that we saw at E3 I'm interested to see how much of the fantasy they're going to lean into from the soul from Dark Souls how much of the sort of gothic aesthetic are they going to take from Bloodborne and it's it's an interesting game that I necessarily would not have been super keen on previously just because i'm interested to see if this is going to be an amalgamation of all the souls titles that came before it and i'm really interested to see that and i saw some glimpses of that in that trailer like i said from uh, e3 so i'm really really interested to see but uh aaron how are you uh how are you feeling after that most recent elden ring trailer yeah i i think i'm i'm in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i i think i think it anything after bloodborne aside from dark souls 3 which i didn't really feel like jumping into after you know without history in the series mm. um i'm i'm pretty much ready to check out whatever from is gonna gonna have in the future um i did try sekiro and i'm like i enjoyed what i played but unfortunately i kept getting a bug where it would just freeze up oh. in the middle of a boss fight and i just couldn't progress and it happened every <laughs> single time and i i i could not get the issue resolved so i just had to completely give up on it um but i'm definitely i'm definitely ready for elden ring um i like the more open worldness it seems Mm. like they're going to be leaning into i think that's an interesting direction to take the series and i definitely liked a lot of the creature designs that they had like like um there was there was one quick shot where you see this like spider that seems to be like made of hand like a hand or something like that and then um, that giant with all the arms coming off of the arms, I thought was really uh, pretty striking. So those are the types of things I'm really interested in uh, to see what they have. Yeah, Neil and I talked about this briefly during our E3 episode uh, that we released. And that those are the two th- elements of the game that really stood out to me, right? I think initially yeah. I would, when I heard that we were going to get that game reveal and like that's coming sooner than we thought, it was one of those things where I was like, 
I don't know if I'm really interested in another Souls game after all the amount of time I spent in Bloodborne over the years and whatnot. And yet, for the reasons you just described, it has me excited in a way that I did not anticipate. And I think that Mm -hmm. the open world nature of it is intriguing to me and the idea that we're going to get more, even more of sort of exploring this world that has these various zones that are all uh, aesthetically different from one another. And that's an element, again, like within uh, Bloodborne that I really enjoyed. And I'm I'm hoping that we get more of that, this idea that it is this large world that has very defining sort of areas to it. Whether or not they share any sort of aesthetic similarities to it, I'm not as much concerned with, with the sort of inclusion of the open world nature, but also the creature design for what you mentioned. I mean, again, I bounce off of fantasy stuff pretty different, uh, pretty frequently, but seeing the designs in the Elden Ring trailer that I'm so looking forward to now is, is that it seems like there is a much more sort of gothic aesthetic to them. Like you said, this creature that's got, it's made up of hands and things like that, which is just complete, complete lunacy, but the world sells it in a way that I think is yeah. really exciting. And I would love to see how that's further explored because if they showed that brief example, imagine all the stuff we haven't seen. Um, and even little things like the, I think one of the, um, creature designs that like Twitter has become uh, consumed with is sort of the uh, the pot with arms and legs that runs around like little things like that like I'm cool with some like cutesy little gothic horror mo- uh, creatures like that mm-hmm. amongst the other things that are completely hellish that we know that they're capable of so that's uh, those are two elements that actually have me pretty excited for something that prior to E3 I wasn't even thinking about which yeah. is exciting and that makes me definitely looking forward to it how about you Neil yeah um I was very much in the boat where I, I didn't care much at the beginning with when they had the trailer because it felt it felt like it was going back to Souls style games and after Sekiro I just I realised when I played Demon Souls's uh, remake on PS5 that I moved past that I didn't care for it and, you know as much as I loved Demon Souls at the time because it was refreshing and new and kind of exciting in its rough and readiness playing again with shiny graphics didn't do it for me it it was like I've done all this it was exciting then but I've played other games in this series that have done similar things and they've burnt me the fuck out you know and Bloodborne ended up being part of that you know which is unfortunate because it's different but Sekiro was enough different where I was so revitalized and thinking yeah I, I can enjoy this genre again where you know I enjoyed the challenge because it's a different kind of challenge and yet the more I watched that trailer and this is the, the absurd thing about it is I watched that trailer more and more and more because again it comes back to that uh, enemy design is just so spectacular and I always find that a fascinating part of any new game from, from software that compels me to want to play it. And more and more that trailer sort of reveal clues that they, they're doing a bit of everything. You know, while it has a very Souls look to it, I think there are elements of Bloodborne and Sekiro in there. I mean, they're saying it's going to be easier than those games because it's open world and all this and I think there's more of a co-op focus um, to be done but that's, that doesn't put me off at all because I think an easier open world experience that you could have with your friends in a Souls-like environment great because again 
it gives something a bit different, you know, and that, that is exactly what From need from their games. I think it's proved by how people react to the things that are different. Uh, you know, as I said, while Sekiro was a bit more divisive in, in terms of how people felt about it, uh, and saying some saying it's just too hard, it still has people who absolutely adore it for what it is, you know, and. Bloodborne is the same, you know, it's like it's a one console and yet it's got such a following, such, you know, stuff written about it to this day, you know, fervently. And you, it's rare to find anyone that can really say it, that say it's horrible, terrible game or anything, you know, which is a rarity in the gaming space, you know, beyond just sort of poking the bear. And, you know, even me who, it's not one of my favorites by a long shot in terms of how it plays. I really enjoy it because of what it does in terms of uh, aesthetic and story. Hmm. So, you know, it it has something about it that is very, very special. And I think that the lessons learned from there and from Sekiro are reasons why I'm very confident that Elden Ring will actually be a really fucking good experience. And it's interesting to me that, like, when I think about Bloodborne, as much as I think it's such a, like a unique and awesome experience, mm-hmm. I have almost no desire for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would, I would rather see something new like Elden Ring, um, because I don't feel like you like as much as I like that world. I feel like you don't necessarily need to just revisit it just for the sake of revisiting. Sure, it. Um, I would. You know, the only way I'd consider ever wanting like a Bloodborne two is if it was something like maybe like. Bioshock Infinite, where they just are like, okay, you, the first Bioshock was underwater, and now, you know, Bioshock Infinite, they just like flipped, literally flipped everything upside down and made, tried to make it the exact opposite while still trying to use similar themes and tones to to the story they were telling. Um, so yeah, I, I always see people on Twitter like asking, like, you know, when's Bloodborne Two coming out or whatever, and it's I just can't imagine ever wanting that directly. Uh, I think it, it wraps in a way that, you know, depending on what ending you get, still, you know, it, it still wraps in a way that you just think, why would why would this work in a second game? Because the strength in Bloodborne and why it stands the test of time is because of its themes and how it ties everything together in such a brilliantly cohesive way. And well, you know, the Souls games all do that. It's proven to be true that it's diminishing returns, you know, when, when you do that. Because you did it once, maybe twice, got away with it the second time because no one really played it uh, with Demon Souls the first time. And as a series, it, it, yeah, it did well for what it was, but I don't think it needed to go as far as it did. And Bloodborne and Sekiro, because I, I agree here, you know, Sekiro is the same for me. I wouldn't want a sequel. I think it told the story it needed to tell. Bloodborne, you know, they had the DLC as well to sort of, sort of add to that world. We don't need it. Let them keep making different games, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of borrow from other games, because that seems to be the strength in From Software, is when they get to branch out from that initial sort of pool of games they seem to do their best work in terms of interesting things 
That's a rarity too, I feel. You know, it's very much so, I find some companies, it's like, well, let's return to the well on that and expand on it in some ways. But, you know, we want to appease fans that are like, hey, where's the sequel to that? And yet, from software, for the most part, they have been willing to branch out from Dark Souls. And yeah, they've yeah. Got, we've gotten three of those, but in between that, I'm saying, in terms of the scope of when uh, Demon Souls and then all the way up to uh, Elden Ring, right? There's growth yeah. there. and We've seen a variation on a formula that works, and yet there's been real developments in making wholly unique experiences out of that. Um, yeah. And I mean, your Bioshock comparison is perfect because, yeah, you've got Bioshock 1 and then Bioshock 2. Sure, we return to Rapture, but there's a gameplay spin there, right? You kind of facilitate as a big daddy, and that has some semblance of a different uh, gameplay experience. And then, of course, Infinite, you're leaving uh, Rapture for Columbia, and you're it's a continuation of the thematics of that and seeing how they're able to expand on that in an interesting way. And for me, that's why Elden Ring uh, has seemed so exciting is that it really feels like an ev- another evolution on what they've been doing. And I don't know, as somebody that has, the older I get, like I have more of a finite amount of time and a week to play games, I want more varied and different experiences. I'm not somebody that is looking for, and it's not a, uh, a slight against people that want a sequel to the next game that series they've been enjoying, but I want a new experience. I don't want to play something that, sure, there might be 25% new content, but 75% of what I'm playing is just like the last thing I played. That's not really yeah. what I'm interested in these days. And so yeah. to see a company that has had so much success, not just go to Bloodborne 2 or whatever, or Demon Souls 2, it's refreshing. And it makes me excited for something that otherwise I wouldn't necessarily be super excited in. And I think that it's a... Uh, it's an interesting time for this company and just in general seeing how maybe other companies that are trying to do souls type games will maybe uh, i think about like the surge which was a game that i kind of bounced off of and to see them do a surge too maybe you see companies like that kind of try to evolve a little bit more and see the from software sort of success in doing something that is somewhat similar, but it's very much its own experience. And that's something that I hope other companies maybe will learn from. And it doesn't just have to be Souls-like games. It could be just other studios in general, taking elements from what has been successful and evolving on it in a manner that can resemble and yet be wholly different and unique. But uh, Aaron, in wrapping up, were there any other sort of points about Bloodborne that uh, we glossed over that make it de facto Souls experience? I don't, I don't think we missed anything. I mean, like, Bloodborne was just such a, like like I said, there was this element of, like, I was really like, lear- like learning something new when I was playing this game. It was such, like, a, a shift for me in, it, it truly felt like a new console generation to me because it was so fast, it was so smooth it was, it was such an interesting evolution of games I played before and I just I, I played this one so much like I actually have the platinum trophy for this game, oh, I played I played once through the game without a guide or anything, just playing naturally, I missed areas, you know didn't find all sorts, like entire areas of the game I missed, um, then I played once entirely through with a, with a guide and all the DLC finding every single piece of everything and then um, one more time I just played through like the critical path as quick as I could um, and I even did all the chalice dungeon stuff like that Bloodborne was a game I I, I lived for a while <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually have some of the uh, art books too like I have one of the I have the Bloodborne art book and the strategy guide too um, because I think that there's just so much wonderful creature design and floor elements and it's just something that you can you know just flip through and like 
feel the create creativity just radiating off the page. I, I I just love it. To go back for a minute to like you're uh, wanting to discuss like the comparisons or I suppose lack thereof comparisons between like the order and uh, Bloodborne mm-hmm. in terms of the art style. Like, yeah, I mentioned that they share similar sort of aesthetics, and yet that is such a uh, that's such a sort of slight towards Bloodborne because yeah, sure, mm-hmm. the order shares somewhat of a Victorian Gothic aesthetic, and yet. Bloodborne is to the umpteenth degree in that regard in terms of just how detailed and how much variety is in that aesthetic that it really channels in a way that seems unparalleled still to me at least um, in terms of just how they are able to exist in that type of aesthetic and yet it doesn't feel like they're repeating anything right there's probably this uh, reliance I suppose to once you sort of establish yourself as I am this or that sort of aesthetic you're like well Sure, we'll have uh, enemy types A, B, and C, and they'll pretty much resemble each other other than one maybe design element or something. This is a range guy. This is the close quarters guy type thing. But Bloodborne, it feels it really basks in that art style in a way that it feels like, again, to your point, you said you've played through it in multiple uh, different runs to various uh, lengths and degrees in terms of like the uh, amount of knowledge you had about it, playing it without a guide, then with a guide, and so forth. I mean... There's just so much depth to a game that I find people that maybe don't play Souls games, they could just easily write it off as like, yeah, it's another ridiculously hard game that's a hack and slash, which of course is, I think we all know, is not a true depiction of that game. But I'm just constantly impressed by the amount of depth it has in seemingly every design element and uh, gameplay element and regard and that nature. But yeah, this was a, a fantastic game for you to bring to us to chat for safe room. And it's one that uh, has inspired me to go back and replay again. Cause I'm sure I've missed uh, a multitude of things, but Aaron, we uh, thank you for your time and coming on to chat about bloodborne. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of safe room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at safe room pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.